All right. Hey, guys. Uh, welcome to another episode of Thin Coat of Varnish. Putting out a second one this month because I wasn't able to put one out last month. So thought I'd give you guys a bonus for the holidays. Let's call it. Let's call that the reason. That's a little bit nicer of a reason, right? So, yeah. Uh, first things first. Just go in and tell you a little bit about um, recently. It's only been a couple of weeks since I've done one of these, but uh, it was still pretty cool. I got some sales recently because of a holiday art sale that we did in Santa Rosa this past weekend at Shady Oak Barrel House, a new little venue for uh, you to get sour beers, but also the guy, Steve, who owns the place is a supporter of the arts. He's hired a lot of local artists to do designs for the graphics and everything. So it's pretty cool. Um, good supporter of the arts gave us a venue to sell our work for the Saturday of last weekend. And I was able to sell, um, probably close to $200 worth of work. It was mostly prints and some very small originals, little studies that have been uh, knocking around my studio for a little while now. So it's good to find some good homes for that. And I think a lot of us ended up buying each other's work. A lot of the artists, there were a bunch of us. And so there's um, also another cool thing that happened is I got to meet and hang out with a lot of people from the local art group that uh, friends of ours have started here in Santa Rosa. So it's good to be a part of that. And so yesterday I hung out with them and it was pretty cool. Uh, we critiqued our friend Tony Brown's ink drawings that he's working on and a couple other people they met, uh, Nathan. And uh, it was cool because the, the other Nathan <laughs> or is a maker at 180 Studios here in Santa Rosa as well. And he showed us around the place and can do all sorts of amazing things there. And uh, they have all sorts of different machines and old computers and all sorts of stuff. You can do electronics and all that. So it was pretty cool to get to know some more people who are doing other art besides painting in the area. So yeah, that's fun. Other things I have going on, just finished working on a painting that's going to be sent down to Nucleus Portland. If you watched my video that I put out a couple weeks ago, you saw part of that. So um, yeah, that's going to be cool. I'm super looking forward to showing that piece in Portland. It'd be great to be able to go up there, but I don't know if I'll have the chance. But either way, um, it'll be nice to show my work in a venue in Portland that I think is a, a nice new place. And I hope to get a relationship going with that venue because I've always been a fan of what Nucleus in LA has done. So them expanding out to Portland. I think they believe in the scene there. So it'll be interesting to watch them grow as a gallery up there and hopefully help to create a scene in Portland because there's no shortage of artists in Portland, but the appreciation for it, at least monetarily, seems to be a little bit lacking. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting to check that out. So I think that's everything I got going on. 
But let's go on with what I actually wanted to come talk to you guys about on here. A few weeks ago, I got put onto this article by Jerry Saltz called How to Be an Artist, or I think 33 Rules to Becoming an Artist. I think that's what the... I'll link the article when I'm done uploading this. So, uh, Jerry Saltz is a pretty well-known art critic. I think he lives out in New York. He's kind of known for making these sort of incendiary statements and articles kind of his whole thing is kind of like being a little bit provocative speaking his mind and doing it in you know like a tough new york way (laughs) something like that i guess you could say his main sort of gig is i think he writes a lot of articles and you know does uh different critiques of museum shows and all that but he also created recently this blog on I think it was Vulture that was about I don't know I guess his thoughts on how to become an artist go from you know struggling to successful and I read it and I have my thoughts about it so I thought it'd be fun to go through and talk about each of his rules and let you know if I agree with them or not and how I critique his sort of critique about art so the article i'll just start reading a little bit of it art is for anyone it's just not for everyone i know this viscerally as a would-be artist who burned out so he already started out with uh would-be artists who burned out and that's already kind of telling about his mindset that he's coming from Let's see. He wrote about that last year. And ever since every lecture I give, every gallery I pop my head into, somebody's asking me for advice. What they're really asking is, how can I be an artist? I guess so. (laughs) It's weird that they're asking an art critic how to be an artist. That's already kind of, I don't know, (laughs) a bit dubious to me. When last month, Banksy Jerry rigged a frame to shred a painting just when it was auctioned, I could almost hear the whispers. It's, is that art? This fall, the biggest museum event in New York is the Whitney's retrospective of Andy Warhol, the paradigmatic self-made, make-anything-art-in-yourself-famous artist. Today, we are all Andy's children, especially in the age of Instagram, which has trained everyone to think visually and to look at our regular lives as fodder for aesthetic output. Um, yeah, I, I kind of agree with them for that. It, Instagram and just social media in general makes everybody assign a value to their life in a way that we've never really had to before. So I get what he's saying there. You could either choose to be part of it or not, but definitely if you're going to be an artist promoting themselves online, you have to at least consider that as a possibility. And a lot of people do, and a lot of people hate it. (laughs) It is what it is at this point. How do you get there from making real art great art? There's no special way. Everyone has their own path, yet over the years I found myself giving the same bits of advice. Most of them were simply gleaned from looking at art than looking some more. Others from listening to artists talk about their work and their struggles. Everyone's a narcissist. I've even stolen a couple from my wife. I actually don't know who his wife is, so... There are 33 rules, and they really are all you need to know to make a life for yourself in art or 34 if you count, 
always be nice, generous, and open with others, and take good care of your teeth. Uh, I don't know. I've seen some artists with bad teeth. <laughs> and number 35, fake it till you make it. Um, yeah, that's, we'll get to that point later, I think. Uh, let's see. Lesson one, don't be embarrassed. I get it. Making art can be humiliating, terrifying, leaving you foul, exposed, like getting naked in front of somebody else for the first time. You often reveal things about yourself that others might find appalling, weird, boring, or stupid. People may think you're abnormal or a hack. Fine. When I work, I feel sick to my stomach with thoughts like, none of this is any good. It makes no sense. But art doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't even need to be good. So don't worry about being smart and let go of being good. Um, I agree with don't be embarrassed. Uh, it's definitely a tough rule or advice to take sometimes, especially if you're a more introverted artist. It's really tough to be honest and revealing about yourself, especially when you start. It takes a long time of stripping away all the, all the layers that you're doing to protect your ego or your sense of, I don't know, your, your front you put out to yourself for protection. Not being embarrassed about showing who you really are is, it's a tough thing to try and get to but i think there's part of that that's that definitely rings true for me and it's weird because the more you do this sort of thing of stripping away all the extraneous bullshit that you put around yourself the further you go with your art and the more it actually ends up connecting with people at least that's what I've seen in my life of creating art, the further I've gotten to exploring where I am and who I am through my art, the more people seem to connect with it. So, yeah, you will feel embarrassed about putting yourself out there in that way, but uh, you have to kind of push through that. And I hate when people say art doesn't need to be good because I spend so much time making my art look good. And it's such a dismissive thing to me when people say it doesn't have to be good. I think it doesn't have to be good when you first start, but I don't think every bit of art needs to be for the general public. Uh, I think that there's a part that needs to be good that if you expect it to be connecting with people, there needs to be some bit of skill in it, I think. I, I don't know. That's my take on it. I, uh, I just get irked when people say that art doesn't need to be good. Art that I care about needs to be good at least <laughs> lesson two tell your own story and you will be interesting amen Luis. don't be reined in by other people's definition of skill or beauty or be boxed in by what is supposedly high or low don't stay in your own lane drawing within the lines is for babies making things add up and be right is for accountants proficiency and dexterity are only as good as what you do with them but also remember just because it's your story doesn't mean you're entitled to an audience you have to earn that don't try to do it with a big single project take baby steps and be happy with baby steps 
Uh, yeah, I definitely agree with a lot of that. Um, tell your story and you'll be interesting. Uh, yeah, you do have to learn to be a good storyteller, I guess, uh, in order to make your story interesting for sure. And that is part of, uh, becoming a good artist, I think. So it's interesting that he says that remember just because your story doesn't mean you're entitled to an audience where I do agree with that. But I think storytelling is a skill of its own. So being a good artist is honing your skill. And so in order for it to be good art, it needs to connect with people. And that will in turn get you an audience. And so that's why when people say that, oh, like it doesn't need to be good art. Well, if it is going to be connecting with people and you demand an audience for your work, it should be good art. That's what I strive toward. Uh, lesson three, feel free to imitate. We all start as copycats, people who make pastiches of other people's work. Fine, do that. However, when you do this, focus, start to feel a sense of possibility in making all these things your own, even when the ideas, tools, and moves come from other artists. Whenever you make anything, Think of yourself as entering a gigantic stadium filled with ideas, avenues, ways, means, and materials, and possibilities. Make these things yours. This is your house now. I think he's trying to make like two different points there. <laughs> At least that's how I see it. Uh, but he says, starting off as copycats, when you do this, focus, start to feel a sense of possibility making. Yeah, um, that's definitely how I start, and that's definitely how I still approach art. <laughs> Uh, I'm definitely influenced and inspired by everything I see around me with art and everything, things I see on Instagram, things I see outside of Instagram, not always paintings, not always even visual things, but I definitely look at that and I'm not striving to copy it necessarily. I'll, I'll try and learn a technique by sort of reverse engineering it. And in that way, I'm try to learn to copy um i still like to when i can take workshops and stuff and that in a way is a form of learning to copy somebody else so in that way yeah i do start with the intention of i guess absorbing some of the skill of the person that i'm learning from or or any not even just skill just other things about them, their aesthetic. And yeah, that's basically what I'm doing. Um, making those things my own as I'm learning them. Lesson four, art is not about understanding or mastery. It's about doing an experience. No one asks what Mozart means or an Indian Raga or the little tripping dance of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers to cheek to cheek and top hat. Forget about making things that are understood. I don't know what ABBA means, but I love it. Imagination is your creed, your sentimentality, and lack of feeling your foe. All art comes from love, love of doing something. Let's see, do I agree with that? Maybe not for me personally. I feel like uh, I like to understand the art I consume, and I like a, an amount of mastery in the art. Maybe because I'm so technique-oriented that looking at uh, mastery of material is such a beautiful thing to me. <laughs> so 
I don't necessarily need to understand it, but I think the artist should understand a certain amount of what they're doing. I would say the majority of what they're doing, they should probably understand it. So I don't know if this lesson is for consuming art. I don't think you have to understand a piece of art to consume it, for sure. But I think this is meant for people who are creating art. And I think that, yeah, you should understand what you're doing and master or at least be on the path of mastery of whatever you're using to create. Lesson five, work, work, work. <laughs> sure. Sister Corita Kent said, the only rule is work. If you work, it will lead to something. It's people who do all the work all the time who eventually catch on to things. I've tried every way in the world to stop work block or fear working or fa of failure. There's only one method that works. Work and keep working. Yeah, that's true for art. But yeah, work smart too. <laughs> And there's a bunch of different ways to work smart. Um, don't be afraid to ask for help in learning how to work. Hard work means different things to different people. It's a little too general just to say work. Because you could work in the wrong direction for sure. Let's see. Every artist and writer I know claims to work in their sleep. I do all the time. Jasper Johns famously said, One night I dreamed that I painted a large American flag. And the next morning I got up and I went out and bought the materials to begin it. How many times have you been given a whole career in your dreams and not heeded it? It doesn't matter how scared you are. Everyone is scared. Work. Work is the only thing that takes the curse of fear away. Sure. I think I can agree with that. I'd have to think about that one more. What I don't agree with that, if, if anything. Well, I don't know about a whole career. I've never been given a whole career in my dreams. But I've definitely been given different concepts and, and directions I want to go with my art that might be different. So... Whether or not those lead to different careers, probably not necessarily for me, but you know, can lead to different directions. I mean, the Painted Roses series didn't come to me in my dreams necessarily, but maybe if it had, then I can agree with that point more. But I get what he's saying there. Uh, lesson six, start with a pencil. Don't worry about drawing, just make marks. Tell yourself you're simply diagramming, playing, experimenting, seeing what, what looks like what. If you can write, you already know how to draw. Don't think good or bad. Think useful, pleasurable, strange. Carry a sketchbook with you at all times. Cover one by one foot piece of paper with marks. But don't just fill the whole page border to border, edge to edge, way too easy. Think about what shapes, forms, structures, configurations, details, sweeps, buildups, dispersals, and compositions appeal to you. Um, I can pretty much 100% agree with that lesson there. <laughs> start with a pencil or, you know, start start with a pen <laughs> if you want as well. But yeah, just make marks. Like um, Jackson Dryden, we had him on the podcast a couple months ago, and he carries a sketchbook everywhere he goes, basically. Or that's how he starts, just by making marks and seeing where they lead. And I think he would also agree with that lesson there. All art is a form of decoration. Um, I think visual art, maybe you can break it down all the way to that. Lesson seven, develop forms of practice. For instance, on the subway, while waiting or sitting around, practice drawing your own hands. Lots of hands on the same page, hands over the other hands, other people's hands if you want to. You can draw other parts of your body that you can see too. But you have to look and then describe with your pen or pencil what you see. Don't make it up. 
Mirrors are fine, even if you want to draw only where your cheek turns into your mouth. Play with different scales, make things bigger, smaller, twisted. Um, sure, yeah. I mean, that's all valid. Um, that's also a good way to <laughs> practice drawing people. Uh, if you're nervous about people catching you like on the subway or, or the bus, if you're nervous about when you're studying people and they catch you glancing at them and you get nervous about that, you can um, just draw their hands. They're much less self-conscious about their hands than their face. So you can get away with drawing their hands more maybe than you would their face. Exercise. Forget being a genius and develop some skills. I think all artists should build a clay pot, sew pieces of fabric together, prune a tree, make a wooden bowl on a lathe by carving, make a lithograph, etching, or woodblock print, make one hokey dolly-like painting or mini Kusama light installation to get this out of your system. You are now in possession of ancient secret knowledge. Um, sure, okay. <laughs> I mean, definitely try out other forms of art. You can learn things from doing that. I don't know if just by doing that you get like some new mystical knowledge out of it, but I know what he's saying there. Lesson eight, now redefine skill. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Let's see what he says there. Artistic skill has nothing to do with technical proficiency, mimetic exactitude, or so-called good drawing. For every great artist, there's a different def definition of skill. Take drawing classes if you wish learn to draw like the masters. You still have to do it in original way. Pollock could not draw realistically, but he made flicking paint out of canvas from above for a time the most prized skill in the art world. You can do the same. Your skill will be whatever it is you're doing differently. Um, yeah, I, I know what he's saying, but that's another one of those kind of bullshit arguments that I don't necessarily subscribe to all the way about your skill being whatever it is you do differently. Yeah, you can definitely market yourself that way that it's a, uh, it's like, oh yeah, nobody's ever done this before. So give me lots of money because I'm the first one to figure it out. There are people who do that and you can make a lot of money by doing that. But that's almost like that's your marketing skill being learned there. Not necessarily your artistic skill. It's like Pollock, you know, the most prized skill in the world, flicking paint at a canvas. Uh, I don't know if anybody will ever convince me that that's not bullshit. <laughs> I think uh, Josh would agree as well from my partner from Waiting to Dry. So, yeah, I mean, there is a different definition of skill from person to person for sure. And that also just comes from or what appeals to you as an artist. So, anyways, that's one that's, eh. <laughs> I kind of half agree with that one. Uh, lesson nine, embed, embed thought and material, Roberta Smith. What does this mean? An object should express ideas. Art should contain emotions. And these ideas and feelings should be easy to understand, complex or not. These days, an artist might exhibit an all-brown painting with long-wall text informing us that the artist took a canvas to Kosovo near the site of a 1990 Serbian massacre and rubbed dirt on the canvas for two hours while blindfolded to commemorate the killing. Recently, while I was looking at boring black and white photographs of clouds in the sky, a gallerist sighted up to me and seriously opined, 
These are pictures of clouds over Ferguson, Missouri in protests of police violence. I started yelling, no, these are just dumb pictures of clouds that have nothing to do with anything. Did you really yell at the the gallerist like that? I don't know. Maybe he did, but because he might be the type of guy that would do that. But the problem is by saying that, you're kind of like saying the same thing that you're, you just kind of contradicted yourself with the last point you made by saying that the object expresses ideas but i don't know that's i mean there if you're critiquing this gallerist in these photographs for being something different than what you were saying i think that paula kind of falls in that same category of just being these marks for the sake of them but you can add whatever you you want to call it to that Thing. So I don't know. I don't know why you can yell at this person and not Pollock because photographers less famous. I don't know. Let's see. What else does he say? There's a different way. In the winter of 1917, Marcel Duchamp, age 29, bought a urinal at JL Ma Ironworks on Fifth Avenue and turned it on its side and signed it R. Mutt, 1917, tiled it, fount- fountained and submitted it to the Non-Juried Society of Independent Artists exhibition. Fountain is an aesthetic equivalent of the word made flesh, an object that is also an idea, that anything can be an artwork. Today is called the most influential artwork of the 20th century. Uh, this project of embedding thought and material to change our conception of the world isn't an, only a new development. When we see cave paintings, we're seeing one of the most advanced and complex visual operating systems ever devised by our species. Makers of the work wanted to portray in the real world something that they had in their head and made that information readable to others. It has lasted tens of thousands of years. With that in mind, build a life totem. That's an exercise. Using any material on any surface, make or draw or render a four-foot-tall totem pole of your life. From this totem... We should be able to know something about you other than what you look like or how many siblings you have. Include anything you want. Words, letters, maps, photos, object signs. This should take no longer than a week. After a week, it's finished. Period. Now show it to someone who doesn't know you well. Tell them only, this is a totem pole of my life till now. That's all. It doesn't matter if they like it. Ask them to tell you what it means about your life. No clues. Listen to what they tell you. Okay, let's go back. I don't know. Word made flesh. Anything can be an artwork. I guess so. <laughs> it doesn't need to necessarily be anything that anybody's going to care about. It's the whole like storytelling thing of, um, you know, like building that life totem thing. Uh, I guess you can do that if you want. You can also uh, <laughs> make or draw or render a four foot tall totem pole of your life. Uh, that seems a bit maybe excessive to do four foot tall you don't necessarily have to do that you can uh write all the stuff on diary make a scrapbook or whatever you want i guess the point of it is showing it to a stranger and then listening to what they tell you there's different ways of doing that you don't necessarily have to carry around a four foot tall thing and show it to strangers i guess i don't know what they yeah you can uh do other things that might be a little easier. <laughs> Listen to what they tell you. Yeah, 
Listen to what they tell you, but then take it with a grain of salt. I'm not 100% sure of the point of doing that. You know, what do you get out of doing that? And what do you get out of the answer? I'm not sure exactly what. Uh, okay, let's go to lesson 10. Find your own voice and exaggerate it. If someone says your work looks like someone else's and you should stop making it, I say, don't stop doing it. Do it again. Do it a hundred or a thousand times. Then ask an artist's friend whom you trust if your st work still looks too much like the other person's art. If it still looks like uh, too much the other person's, try another path. Imagine the horror Philip Gustin must have felt when he followed his own voice and went from being a first-string abstract expressionist in the nice 1950s to painting clunky, cartoony figures smoking cigars, driving around in convertibles, and wearing KKK hoods. He was all but shunned for this. He followed his voice anyway. This work is now some of the most revered from the entire period. Well, okay, <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, that makes sense to me. If you're on a path that you feel like you're, you've outgrown, then for sure try something new. And yes, definitely be aware that <laughs> you're, it's possible that you're all but you're going to be all but shunned for it. Hopefully you don't have to do that in the limelight of everybody watching you do this, but uh, it can happen and maybe will happen. I'd say, yeah, that's pretty good advice there. <laughs> okay, what's his exercise here? And on archaeology, making an index, family tree, chart, or diagram of your interests, all of them, everything, visual, physical, spiritual, sexual, leisure time, hobbies, foods, buildings, airports, everything. Every book, movie, website, etc. The totality of this self-exposure may be daunting, scary, but your voice is here. This will become a resource and re record to turn to and add to for the rest of your life. It's not a bad idea. Um, I don't know if I've ever done anything quite so out in the open like that. But it can be, yeah, an index of your interests like that. Yeah, maybe I'll try doing something like that one day. That huh. could be useful just for me to be like, this is who I am. I can look at, look at it in front of me and reconsume it and decide how much of it is valid for me at any given time. And also use it to craft other things that have to do with me, like... Uh, Need to write that artist statement or bio and go in and, and use that for for almost uh, a glossary of myself to be like, okay, how how much of this do I want to share with other people at this point in time? And how much do I want to add to it and take away from it? So, yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> Lesson 11. Listen to the crazy voices in your head. I have my own sort of school of Athens in my head. A team of rivals, friends, famous people, influences dead and alive. They're all looking over my shoulder as I work. None of them are mean. All make observations, recommendations, etc. I use music a lot. I think, okay, let's begin this piece with a real pal, like Beethoven, or the Barbara Kruger in my head says, make this sentence short, punchy, declarative, aggressive. Led Zeppelin chimes in with, try a hairy experiment here, let it all show. All the CNE's paintings I've ever seen beg me, make it beautiful. D.H. Lawrence is pounding on the table. Alexander Pope is making me get a grip. While Stevens listens to my language and recommends words. Whitman pushes me on. My inner Melville gets grandiose. And Proust drives me to make longer and longer sentences until they almost break. And my editor cuts these into eighths or edits them down to one. 
Writers need editors, no exceptions. <laughs> These voices will all be, be there for you when things get tough. Um, sure, that's like just saying, that's a fancy way of saying like, uh, use your inspirations to guide you. And uh, one way to, of doing that is to uh, treat them like they're voices in your head and um, take them on, use them, maybe not like, you can either do it like literally, what would they say to me at this point? Or you can um, just sort of intimate what they might say or what how they might feel about your work. Pretty basic advice, but it's not bad. <laughs> Lesson 12, know what you hate. It's probably you. <laughs> Exercise, make a list of art. Make a list of three artists whose work you despise. Make a list of five things about each artist that you do not like. Be as specific as possible. Often there's something about what these artists do that you share. Really think about this. That's interesting. <laughs> That's uh, one of the most interesting exercises and lessons so far. Three artists whose work you despise. Make a list of five things about each artist that you do not like. Be as specific as possible. That's a cool exercise to do just so that you... It makes you think about what you like and why just by being the contrast of what you don't like. If you were to look at that art, what would be, I don't know if it necessarily be the opposite of something that you do like. So that can be very revealing. Um, I might decide to do that. <laughs> I like that idea. That's a cool thing. Maybe I'll get uh, Josh and I to do that for a, later episode of waiting to dry I'll, I'll bring that up to him see what he thinks about doing that because that's kind of a cool idea i don't think i would do it for somebody who is close to me i don't think i there's anyone who i'm friends with or or know and in any sort of way connected to me whose work i hate and uh so it'd probably be somebody from art history that i'd have to use um uh, probably somebody from the 20th century like uh i mean pollock could be one of those guys <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure it'd be one of josh's but uh i don't know there there really isn't that many artists whose work i hate like i despise it would probably have to be i don't know some weird ass conceptual artist or you know just somebody whose work i just it's so just cheesy and yeah there's probably a few people i could think of off the top of my head who whose work I don't like, but I don't know if I have the energy to really say I despise them. So that could be eh, uh, still worth probably doing. Um, so yeah, I, I may just decide to do that. I like that idea enough to try it. Uh, okay, so lesson 13, scavenge. Life is your syllabus, gather from everywhere. Andy Warhol said, I always liked to work on things that were discarded that everybody knew were no good. He also understood that department stores will become museums, meaning that optical information can come from everywhere, even from a celestial seasonings package. Originality did not conveniently die just in time for you and your generation to insist it no longer exists. You just have to find it. You can do this by looking for overlooked periods of art history, disliked and discredited styles, and forgotten ideas images and objects then work them into your own art a hundred times or a thousand times that's a cool i like that as well 
Um, that's definitely a good point. Um, people always say there's nothing new under the sun, you know, and that at this point, that quote is how many years old now? So it's also unrealistic to say that, yeah, there's, um, everything stopped being original as soon as that quote was created. Right. So yeah, uh, there's more and more people in the world that are trying to search for original things all the time. So it is, I guess, hard to be original because you're being bombarded with original ideas all the time. But you, by knowing what's already been made, you can also use that as a, okay, well, I only need to move the needle one degree, a half a degree, a 0.001 of a degree over to this other direction to be quote unquote original. So I don't think it's as hard to be original as people make it out to be. Remixing is a good way to be original. That's more or less what I do with my work. I mean, I have a lot of different influences from all over the place in my work and I don't get accused of being unoriginal. Uh, maybe there's people out there who think my work is unoriginal, but they don't care enough to express that to me. But either way, I don't really care if they say that or not. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know where I get my influences from, but I think my, my own mashup is my own sense of originality. That's just how I consider myself to be using my creativity and uh, desire to be original. Okay, so lesson 14, compare cats and dogs. Okay, this sounds ridiculous, but call your dog and it comes right over to you, placing its head in your lap, slobbering, wagging its tail. A miraculous direct communication with another species. Now call your cat. It might look up, twitch a bit, perhaps go over to the couch, rub against it, circle once, and lie down again. What am I saying? In seeing how that cat reacted, you are seeing something very close to how artists communicate. The cat is not interested in direct communication. The cat places a third thing between you, and it relates to you through this third thing. Cats communicate abstractly, indirectly. As Carol Bove says, you don't just walk up to beauty and kiss her on the mouth. Artists are cats, and they can't be herded. Okay, so, I guess, um, <laughs> not every artist is the same way. Not every artist is interested in obscuring their communication. I maybe happen to be <laughs> someone whose work doesn't try to directly communicate something um, to the viewer in a direct way, like, say, a Norman Rockwell would or any illustrator tends to be. But um, it's another one of those sort of cliches, like herding cats, like artists are, are cats and they can't be herded. Uh, it's pretty general. It tends to hold true in a lot of uh, circles that I've been in. So he's not wrong for saying that, but I don't really get the usefulness of pointing that out in this situation here so i don't know you can just be like eh, take that one or leave it 
Not sure what that lesson really teaches you. Uh, lesson 15. Understand that art is not just for looking at. Art does something. In the past hundred years or so, art has been reduced to mainly being something we look at in clean, white, well-lit art galleries and museums. Art has been limited this way, made a passive thing, another tourist attraction to see, take a picture in front of, and move on from. But for almost this entire history, art has been a verb, something that does things to or for you, that makes things happen. Um, holy relics in churches all over the world are said to heal. Art has been carried into war, made to protect us, curse a neighbor, kill someone, be an aid in getting pregnant or preventing pregnancy. <laughs> there are huge, be beautiful, multicolored, intricately structured Navajo sand paintings used in ceremonies to ask the gods for assistance. The eyes painted on Egyptian sarcophagi are not there for us to see. They are there so the interred person can watch. The paintings inside the tombs were meant to be seen only by the beings in the afterlife. Have you ever cried in front of a work of art? Write down six things about it that made you cry. Take the, tack the list to your studio wall. These are magical abracadabras for you. Uh, I like that. I like that whole lesson. Uh, I don't know if I've ever thought of it specifically in that way, but I like the, what he's saying there. I think there is that disconnect of art these days that makes it hard for people to access it. Whereas uh, the functionality of art has been largely taken out of, of art in this day and age. That's sort of the function, or not function, I guess the, the um, triumph, for better or worse, of modern art to make art this thing that is so inaccessible and therefore more worth a ridiculous amount of money at this point in time, uh, at least like the ones that they prop up in these white wall galleries with huge ceilings and flat light. And uh, I get what he's saying. Yeah. Art has traditionally been more functional and maybe there's something there that uh, when you take art out of the context of being in museums and like you said clean well-lit art galleries it may maybe the individual piece of art doesn't get to be as valuable in that way of like priceless works of art but if you make it more functional there is a worth to it in the general sphere of human experience perhaps uh i don't know i'm just kind of thinking out loud there but i like the thought behind that lesson there uh lesson 16 learn the difference between subject matter and content one of the most crucial lessons there is. Okay, so what does he mean? The subject matter of Francis Bacon's 1953 study after Velasquez's portrait of Pope Innocent X is a pope, a seated male in a transparent sort of box. That's it. The content might be a rebellion or an indictment of religion. It might be claustrophobia or hysteria or the madness of religion or civilization. The subject matter of Michelangelo's David is a standing man with a sling. The content might be grace, beauty, 
He was just 17, if you know what I mean. Pensiveness, physical awareness, timelessness, eternal things, a form of perfection, vulnerability. This content is high renaissance. Bernini's David, made 120 years later, is broke. All action and drama. When you look at art, make subject matter the first thing you see, and then stop seeing it. Try to find the content in a painting by Robert Ryman, who has been making almost all white work since the 1950s. Ask what Ryman's or any artist's ideas are and what his relationship to paint is. Uh, I'm going to skim this. It's just too long of a read in here. Is the surface in sensual or intellectual? What are the artist's ideas about craft and skill? Um, why should this be in a museum? Why should it not be in a museum? What would you, would you want to live with it? Why or why not? Why do you imagine the painting is a size? Uh, okay, so that's just questions you should ask yourself while you look at art. But, yeah, I do like that. Subject matters is usually what the inroad is for art, for people to look at it. Uh, I would say this is more a thing of, this is probably better advice for people who look at art. Um, subject matter matters a lot, both to artists and people who look at art. And the thing is, it's easy to overlook that once you've been painting for long enough. You can sometimes forget. You get so wrapped up in how something was painted that you sort of forget what was painted. Definitely the context in why it was created is very important. I don't know if it's necessarily more important than the subject matter or how it was painted. I think all three of those things work together sort of a, a you know, trinity of, of uh, looking at art. So I wouldn't say forget what, what the subject matter is, but be basically pay attention to all three of those things. It's important, I think, to look at all those things and give them a certain amount of weight. Um, that's one I'll think about some more because I definitely have probably more to say about that, and, but I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. Lesson 17, see as much as you can. Critics see by standing back, getting close, stepping up and back, looking at a whole show, comparing one work to another, considering the artist's past work, assessing developments, repetitions, regressions, failures, lack of originality, etc. Artists see very differently. They get very close to a work. They inspect every detail, its textures, materials, makeup. They touch it, look at the edges and around the back of the object. What are the artists doing? They will say, seeing how it's made. I would say stealing. <laughs> you can steal from anything. You should. You better. Bad art teaches you as much as good art. Maybe more. Great art is often the enemy of the good. It doesn't leave you enough room to steal. Hmm. That's an interesting one. Um, I mean, a lot of these things I, I am already doing myself. Um, if you're not doing it, um, then you're doing it differently than I do. <laughs> I don't necessarily say that you should do it the way I'm doing it. But, um, yeah, definitely I would say he's right pretty much about all that he said there. Part that maybe I don't under quite completely understand is great art is often the enemy of the good. It doesn't leave you enough room to steal. Uh, I mean, you could steal, <laughs> steal from great art for sure. Uh, great art inspires you to want to at least make good art. 
maybe you don't ever get to the point of making great art, quote unquote. But I don't know. I think people try to steal from great art all the time. So I wouldn't necessarily say um, it's the enemy of the good. Lesson 18, all art is identity art. This is because it is made by somebody. And don't worry about being political enough. Oh, God. Yes, please don't. Um, Kazimir Malevich painted squares during World War I. Mark Rothko made fuzzy squares during World War II. Agnes Martin drew grids on canvas during the Vietnam War. All art is a confession, more or less oblique. Artists who claim that art is supposed to be good for us need to also see that there is many ways of being art being good for us as there are works of art. Yes, <laughs> I definitely agree with pretty probably pretty much all that. Yeah, all art is... Yeah, th maybe that's more a lesson for other people. People who get wrapped up in identity politics, basically. That's just not me. So, uh, that's a lesson I would probably give to other people rather than one I need to learn myself. Lesson 19, all art was once contemporary art. Never forget this. All art was made by artists for and in reaction to their time. It will make you less cynical and closed off and more understanding and open to everything you ever see. Please do this. It applies to all of us. I don't know if I have a lot to say about that one. Because uh, I pretty much agree with him. But I also, it's not a thing where I concern myself too much about being th things being contemporary or not. So, yeah, you can take that one or leave it. Uh, lesson 20. Accept that you will likely be poor. Even though all we see of the art world these days are astronomical prices, glitz, glamour, and junkie-like behavior, remember that only 1% of 1% of 1% of all artists become rich off their artwork. You may feel overlooked, underrecognized, and underpaid. Too bad. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. That's not why you're doing this. Um, okay. There's a lot of things I have problems with for that one. First of all, don't accept that you'll likely be poor because you don't have to be. Um, you can figure out ways to make money off of your art. Uh, you can do, you can be an artist in your quote unquote spare time, or more likely, you can subsidize your your career yourself by having a career that supports your art. Um, you can do all sorts of different things. I don't necessarily buy that you have to be a slave to your easel um, at all costs, uh, to the cost of making money elsewhere. I don't agree that you need to be the sort of, I don't know, junkie-like behavior. Yeah, so astronomical price. I mean, that's such that it's true that way of saying like that 1% of 1% of artists that you see making those kind of headlines are not really what the art world tends to be in the typical sense. It's more of a thing that grabs headlines because it's easy to be sensational and write a, a fun story about. But uh, I'd say the majority of artists who are doing it aren't, aren't necessarily poor. Unless that's all they're doing and they don't have the business skills to make money from their art. But the majority of artists who I know are, are making art 
professional artists have some sort of side gig. So um, you don't have to be poor to do your art, um, at least part-time. So lesson 21, define success, but be careful. Typical answers are money, happiness, freedom, doing what I want, having a community of artists, having people see what I do. But if you marry a rich person and have lots of money, would you be satisfied with just the money? Also, Subway sells a lot of sandwiches, but that doesn't make them good. What about being happy? Don't be silly. A lot of successful people are unhappy, and a lot of happy people aren't successful. Um, I'm quote-unquote successful, and I'm confused, terrified, insecure, and foul all the time. Success and happiness live on different sides of the track. Um, I guess so. Do you want the real definition of success? The best definition of success is time, the time to do your work. How will you make time if you don't have money? You will work full-time for a long time. You'll be depressed because of this for a long time. Resentful, frustrated, envious. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. But you're a sneaky, resourceful artist. Soon you'll figure out a way to work only four days a week. You'll start to be a little less depressed. But then on Sunday night, you're depressed again, back on your right to nowhere job that's still taking up too much of your time. But you are really sneaky and resourceful. This is a life and death matter to you. Eventually, and this comes for fully 80% of the artists I have ever known, you scam away to work in only three days a week job. You may work in a gallery for an artist or museum as a teacher, an art critic, an art handler, bookkeeper, proofreader, whatever. Now you aren't depressed anymore. You have time to make your work and hang out more. You are now the first measure of successful. Now get to work or quit being an artist. (laughs) I don't know if uh, happy people aren't successful. (laughs) They're successful at being happy, right? (laughs) What is success? I guess you got—you do have to decide, decide what success is. But I mean, a lot of those things that I said, typical answers, money, happiness, freedom, doing what I want. Um, I'd say you're successful if you have a combination of all of those, th- those things there. So I would say I would, de- I would define success for myself if I had all those. Um, I have m- probably most of those things. <laughs> have happiness. Uh, I would say I have freedom for the most part. I'm doing what I want. I have a community of artists that keeps growing. Uh, I'd say the only thing I'm really missing right now is money. And that's a kind of a big thing. That I, that's a main part of the puzzle there that I'm tr- working on. So <laughs> the further along I go with that, I'll have more money, I would say. I'm happy enough in the sense that I'm not depressed of any reason. So I would say uh, I'm almost, I'm, I'd say I'm almost successful. So um, there's a lot to kind of unpack with that rule there. And I don't know, I'm getting a little, I want to keep this moving. So I'll just let you decide how you want to take that one. Lesson 22, it only takes a few people to make a career. Exactly how many? Let's count. Uh, dealers, you only need one dealer, someone who believes in you, supports you emotionally, pays you promptly, doesn't play too many mind games, who'll be honest with you about your crappy or great art, who does as much as possible to spread your work out there and try to make money from it too. This dealer doesn't have to be in New York. I don't have, (laughs) I don't necessarily have a dealer like that. Uh, maybe dealer meaning like a gallery. So, I mean, I have some like that, but I would definitely need more because I don't quite have the one that's making me a lot of money in that way. But I would say uh, the galleries I work with do most of that for me. (laughs) Collectors, 
You only need five or six collectors who will buy your work from time to time and over the years, who really get what you're up to, who are willing to go through the ups and downs, who don't say, make them like this. Each of these six collectors might talk to six other collectors about your work. Even if you only have six collectors, that's enough for you to make enough money to have enough time to make your work. Um, I mean, I, I've had more collectors than that over the, the years. So I would say, depending on how much you're selling your work for, maybe that, that works a little better, uh, depending on what kind of collectors you have. I think you, most people will need a lot more than five or six collectors because, depending on what you're selling, um, selling your art to five or six people at a time can work, but you need to keep that momentum going for a, a while. So I would say that's incomplete advice. I wouldn't say it's wrong advice. I'd say, yeah, there's more to it than the, just that for the majority of people. Critics. It would be nice to have two or three or as many as three critics who seem to get what you're doing. It would be best if these critics were of your generation, not geezers like me. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess critics can definitely help you put your art on the map because it's um, somebody vetting you, um, somebody who's already known as a tastemaker. I would say maybe you need tastemakers to believe in your work and give you the publicity and also the thumbs up for what you're doing. I don't know if I have very, if I'm very well critically reviewed. I'm, I just don't end up in the places that people review your work. So uh, I can't say if that's true or not, because I'm just not in that world yet. <laughs> Curators. It would be nice to have one or two curators of your generation or a little older who would put you in shows from time to time. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, I end up in a lot of different shows and I mean, there's, everyone's sort of a part-time curator in a way. Uh, they, anybody, if, have you ever done a group show? Then you are probably curated into it, at least, uh, for a gallery. So let's see, what does he say? That's it. 12 people. Surely your crappy art can fake out 12 stupid people. I've seen it done with only three or four supporters. I've seen it done with one. I don't know. I still don't buy that. I think you definitely need more than 12 people who like your work or 12 people who support your work. It just depends on maybe you can luck out and find those 12 people who who have enough resources to actually support your work um, for a long time. But I would say in this age of crowdfunding everything, you have to um, get a little bit from a lot of people rather than a lot from a few people. I think that's the trap that people kind of put themselves in just because that's just how the world of art has worked for such a long time, at least selling art, that you just need to find that one good gallery or one uh, patron that will support you um, for a long time over the years and I don't know anybody who is doing it that way and I just don't think it's very common so um even 12 people seems like too low of a number 
I think you, it's probably more close to like a hundred people who, who you need. So, um, yeah, anyways, he goes through and gives examples of people, but uh, again, it's like, uh, these are old answers he gives as examples. So let's see. I can't sugarcoat this next part. Some people are better connected than others. You get to 12 faster. The art world is full of these privileged people. You can hate them. I too is unfair and unjust and still in operation around women and artists of color, especially not to mention artists over 40. This needs to be changed or yeah, this needs to change and be changed by all of us. I'm sure he knows a lot more people than I do in the art world. So maybe he does know these people with the 12 benefactors that, that he can, um, point to as examples but um yeah i think it's true what he's saying about the other things um ageism sexism racism i don't know it's just i don't run into it that much i mean i'm not white and i don't feel discriminated in our world but i'm also not in i don't put myself in positions that would have the opportunity if it were to happen, it'd be such a rare case. It'd be such a big deal. And that that uh, the discriminating offender would be so ostracized out of the, the scene that it just doesn't really happen in my world. So um, maybe there's like more of an institutional sort of discrimination happening that that is harder to both see and deal with, but it's always kind of there. I just don't really run into it for myself, which is great, I guess. <laughs> Lesson 23, learn to write. When it comes to artist statements, keep it simple, stupid. Don't use art jargon. Write in your own voice. Write how you talk. Don't try to write smart. Keep your statement direct, clear to the point. Don't oppose big concepts like nature and culture. Don't use words like interrogate, reconceptualize, deconstruct, desymbolize, transcendental, mystical, commodity culture, liminal space, or haptic. Don't quote, I don't know how you say that, uh, a bunch of other, <laughs> those guys are great, but don't quote them, come up with your own theory. People who claim to hate or have no theory, that's your theory, you idiots. <laughs> Important things are hard to write about, that's the way it is, deal with it, and if it's pretentious to say, don't say it. Uh, sure, I can agree with all that. Um, don't use art jargon. I mean, just because it's so cliche at this point, it's so played out to say words like juxtapose, <laughs> even though juxtapose is such a great word for so many things. It's such a great word that it's not a great word anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not like an expert at writing artist statements or anything. So um, I would definitely... Okay, what's his... Okay, well, here's an, an, uh, or here's an exercise for him. Write a simple 100 to 150 word statement about your work. Give it to someone who doesn't know your work. Have them tell you what you think your work looks like or what they think your work looks like. Note the differences. Two tips. Don't make writing a big deal. Just write, you big baby. You already know how to write. Never just say, you tell me what it is. That's pompous bullshit. When it comes to your work, you're the best authority there is. Um, yeah, I mean, I could... I know what he's saying by the by that second tip. It's definitely a cop out <laughs> for most people to say like, "Oh, you tell me what what the art is." I try not to do that. <laughs> I try to have at least some sense of of what I can say about my work when somebody asks. But 
what he was saying, like uh, people who claim to hate or have no theory, that's your theory. I guess that's kind of my sort of philosophy. I don't necessarily have a, a big overall encompassing theory about my work, but I can at least explain a piece of mine when somebody asks me about it to a good enough degree, I think. <laughs> Lesson 24, artists must be vampires. Stay up late every night with artists around your age. Show up, go to openings, events, parties, wherever there are more than two of your kind. Artists must commune with their own all the time. There are no exceptions to this rule, even if you live out in the woods, quote unquote. Preferably commune in person, but online is more than fine. Doesn't matter where you live, big city, small city, little town. You will fight in love together. You will develop new languages together and give each other comfort, conversation, and the strength to carry on. This is how you cha will change the world in your art. To protect yourselves, form small gangs. Protect one another no matter what. This gang will allow all of you to go out and into and take over parts of the world. Argue, sleep with, love, hate, get sick of your fellow gang members. Whatever happens, you need one or another for now, or one another for now. Protect the weakest art in your gang because there are people in the gang who think you're the weak one. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff in there. I guess that the title of that lesson is kind of eye-catching, right? Artists must be vampires. I mean, definitely hang out with other artists if you can. I don't think anybody's too keen on just not hanging out with other artists if you're an, if you're an artist. I think we all sort of, as humans, uh, thrive with others of our own kind. So, I mean, this is kind of obvious advice, right? I would think. Um, but the interesting part is protect the weakest artists in your game because there are people in game who think you're the weak one. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure you feel like sometimes you're the weakest artist in your game. I think everybody goes through a period of feeling that way. But yeah, it's protect by lifting up as well. It's not necessarily like you guys are being um, attacked all the time, so you need to be protected, but it's more of a protection in the form of providing support, I think is what he's trying to say there. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's good advice, but I'd say kind of obvious. <laughs> Lesson 25, learn to deal with rejection. Uh, in 1956, after careful consideration, the Museum of Modern Art rejected a shoe drawing by Warhol that he had given to the museum. Monet was rejected for years from Paris salon exhibitions. The work of Manet and Courbet was rejected as scandalous, sensationalist, ugly. Manet's paintings were said to exhibit <laughs> inconceivable vulgarity. Manet didn't want to show a sedan because he thought he was vulgar. <laughs> uh, Stephen King, The Beatles, just give some more things here. Uh, but don't just ignore criticism. Instead, keep your rejection letters. Paste them to your wall. They are goads, things to prove wrong. <laughs> you may be Ahab about these bad reviews, but don't get taken down by them. They don't define you. Much trickier. Accept that every criticism can have a grain of truth to it. Something you did that allowed this person to say what was said. You might be ahead of your time, but the person couldn't see it. Or maybe you were doing something that isn't up to snuff that allowed them to not appreciate your work. Or how you haven't found a way to make your work speak to the people you want to speak to. It's all on you. Uh, in general, you must be uh, open to critique, but also develop an elephant skin. And remember that nothing anyone says to you about your work can be worse than the things you've already thought and said to yourself a hundred times. I always tell anyone criticizing, criticizing me, you could be right. It has a nice double edge that the person often never feels, and that gives pleasure. <laughs> okay, well, there's a lot to uh, 
get into in that one. I mean, yeah, definitely learn to deal with rejection. And I think the best way to deal with rejection is that lesson that he first said that uh, accept that every criticism can have a grain of truth to it. Because, yeah, there's, it's what he said, there's a reason that somebody said that to you and you can either try and figure out what that is and accept it or you can decide after the fact that it wasn't valid the person was criticizing had more to do with them than what you did but criticism can be a blessing in disguise in a way usually for somebody to feel the need to criticize your work means that they you stirred some sort of emotion in them. Uh, not everybody handles a change in emotion in the same way. Some people react very negatively to to it, and that's when they decide to lash out at it. Uh, there can also be the critique of somebody where they see a mistake that they've made before, and they're trying to help you get beyond that mistake. And I think that's probably the most valid form of criticism, the or at least most helpful form of criticism. So you got to be able to kind of suss out which is which. And uh, yeah, the first step is in learning how to do that is to not be too defensive right off the bat. And I think that uh, saying that that stock line of you could be right, that's a good... Uh, that's a really good um, shield to throw up as you learn how to figure that out. I mean, you could use that for the rest of your life, really, and it'd still be pretty good. So I think I think that's pretty cool. Uh, I like that lesson there. Okay, so lesson twenty six. Hopefully, we're getting that's getting pretty long, isn't it? Um, lesson twenty six: Make an enemy of envy today. Envy looks at others but blinds you. It will eat you alive as an artist. You live in the service of it, always on the edge of a funk, dwelling on past slights, watching everything, always seeing what other people have, scanning for other artists who are mentioned instead of you. Envy erodes your inner mind, leaves less room for development, and most importantly for honest self-criticism. Your imagination is taken up by what others have rather than what you need to be doing in your own work to get what you want. From this fortress, everything that doesn't happen to you is blamed on something or someone else. You fancy yourself a modern Van Gogh, a passed-over genius the world isn't ready for. You relinquish agency and responsibility. Your feelings of lack define you, make you sour, bitter, not loving, and mean. Poor you. <laughs> Too bad all those other bad artists are getting shows and you're not. Too bad they're getting the articles, money, and love. Too bad they have a trust fund, they went to better schools, married someone rich, and better are better looking, have thinner ankles, are more social, have better connections, or use their connections low networking skills and education too bad you're shy a secret almost everyone in the art world is almost equally as bashful and skittish about putting themselves out there <laughs> i guess that's true um i'm i'm unatta- i'm unable to attend seated dinners we all do the best we can but poor me isn't a way to make your work better and you're out of the game if you don't show up so grow a pair whatever and get back to work i mean that's just like almost like dad advice <laughs> made in an interesting kind of way it's true like everyone has their own crosses to bear and you just got to figure out a way around them or use them to your advantage if you can i mean the whole too bad you're shy <laughs> kind of thing like this 
partly me doing these vlogs is trying it's me trying to get over that in a way and just learning to speak about myself and my thoughts about art in a more uh cohesive way and yeah it's like he said the whole too bad thing is just like get to work and make something of it recognize your weaknesses and either make them into strengths or go around them somehow so i mean yeah it's it's good advice but I think it's not advice that no one's ever heard. Lesson 27, having a family is fine. This is an unwritten rule, especially for women in the art world that having children is bad for your career. This is idiotic. Probably 90% of all artists have had children. These artists have mostly been men and it wasn't bad for their careers. Of course, women were tasked almost exclusively with domesticity and child rearing over the centuries, not permitted in schools and academies, and not even allowed to draw the nude, let alone apprentice to or learn from artists. That is over. Having children is not bad for your career, quote-unquote. Having children means having less time or money or space. So what? Most children raised within the art world have amazing lives. <laughs> As artist Laurel Nakadate has observed, being a parent is already very much like being an artist. It means always lugging things around, living in chaos, doing things that are mysterious or impossible or scary. <laughs> That's interesting. As with art, children can drive you crazy all day, make you wish this could all go away. And then in a single second, at any point, you're redeemed with a moment of intense transformative love. Well, that's cool. Uh, well, I don't know what it's like to be um, uh, a parent. So uh, maybe some of you with parents can chime in with something more uh substantial to say about that i mean i i will probably have children later on when i'm ready for that but it's not something i'm worried about too much right now so i don't know that's maybe one that i'll come back to some other day uh lesson 28 what you don't like is as important as what you do like don't say i hate figurative painting yeah, don't say that. How dare you? <laughs> you never know when you will see a so-called figurative painting that catches your attention. So don't be an art world undertaker pronouncing mediums dead. <laughs> painting is dead. The novel is dead. The author is dead. Photography is dead. History is dead. Nothing is dead. Um, couldn't agree more with that. <laughs> yeah, maybe when I was a art student, I was more quick to say um, that I hate certain things. I mean, it comes from being, you know, being a teenager and trying to assert your your emotions as facts. That's, I'd say that's kind of where it comes from. People hopefully grow out of that. And um, I feel like I have as much as I can. And so, uh, yeah, that's all good advice. Nothing's dead. Yeah. I don't know if people are still going around saying that. I'd say that's more like clickbait sort of stuff to declare things are dead like you know comedy is dead and so you know that sort of thing uh it just it's a sensationalist thing to to say it in that way so that's why people do it and you know see through it <laughs> if you can okay lesson 29 art is a form of knowing yourself Art is not optional, not decorative landscaping in front of the castle of civilization is no more, more or less important than philosophy, religion, economics, or psychology. Uh, I like that. I like how he said that. Not decorative landscaping in front of the castle of civilization. And that's a, yeah, man, that's such a good sentence there. Because 
yeah, it's so easy to, um, in this day and age, feel like that's all art is these days. But I think we, as artists, need to keep putting out the the importance of it. Like, I think most people understand the importance of science or math or, you know, um, anything like that. The so-called, um, the social sort of sciences. Uh, but yeah, uh, philosophy, the other things that get a little more squishy is like philosophy, religion, economics, or psychology. Uh, I mean, those all, I would say people are pretty much 100% in agreement that those are all important things. You might not like religion. <laughs> you might despise it for whatever reason, but you can agree that it's important, right? Um, philosophy, uh, that might be the one that is a little more difficult to explain to certain people that it's uh, important. But I would say most people, even if they don't study it, they understand philosophy is important. Uh, art seems to be the thing that people get m most like. When you say somebody, when you say you're an artist, you, they don't. They definitely don't look at you like you're a doctor or a or a physician. You know, um, they don't necessarily right away understand your importance. So. I think we as artists just keep, need to keep figuring out more and more ways to show people the importance of what we do. Um, however you do it. I mean, I'm still working on it all the time. <laughs> so I don't blame you if you haven't figured that one out yet yourself either. Um, lesson 30 on the home stretch here. Artists do not own the meaning of their work. Remember, anyone may use your art, any art, in a way that works for them. You may say your work is about diaspora, but others might see it in a climate change or a nature study. Cool. Um, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Artists do not own the meaning of their work. You can, I mean, you can do your best to try and impart the meaning you own. That comes down to the clarity of what you're trying to say and communicate. So... Uh, as much as you can, I mean, it's true that, um, we had a great sort of conversation with Hiroshi Sato on waiting to drive podcasts. And we talked a little bit about that sort of thing. Artists don't own the meaning of the work. You can't, um, you can't control how people react to your work. So I agree with that. Um, in the context of being helpful for artists, I'd say, don't allow yourself to get needlessly frustrated with people who don't seem to get you or interpret your work in, in, what you, in the way you expected them to or, or you had a different way. Um, you can either look at it as a critique and be like, okay, well, maybe there was something that I didn't communicate as clearly as I thought. How can I fix that? Or you can look at it like, Oh, that's a cool angle that you can look at as a as a positive. Like, oh, that's an angle I didn't look at it before. I'm I'm happy to get a, a differing opinion on my work. Uh, I look at those like I I love when people <laughs> uh, interpret my work in a way that I wasn't expecting them to, because my work is so usually open to interpretation. It's very rarely that I have a really solid, um, I guess, thing that I'm trying to communicate. And then I'm like, you must 
see my work in this way. Uh, I kind of leave it open-ended on purpose because I love hearing how people see my work and I don't have a specific way that I need people to see my work, you know? So I'm happy not to own the meaning of my work, I think is all I'm trying to say. And uh, it, I don't know, maybe it's just a different way of looking at things for my own work. So, uh, okay. Lesson 31, all art is subjective. What does this mean? We have a consensus that certain artists are good, but you may look at a Rembrandt and find yourself thinking, it's pretty brown. <laughs> That's fine. It doesn't mean you're dumb. It does mean that while there is one text for a Hamlet, every person who sees the play sees a different Hamlet. Moreover, every time you see Hamlet, it is different. This is the case with almost all good art. It is always changing, and every time you see a new, you think, how could I have missed that before? Now I finally see until the next time it rearranges your thinking. Um, this brings you into one of art's metaphysical quasar chambers. Art is a static, non-changing thing that is never, never the same. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, I kind of like that. It's true. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely art and artists I've gone to after learning about art and, and painting a, a while that I go back and be like, damn, that's so good. <laughs> um, I'd say a lot of abstract art that I like now, um, had I seen it when I was a um, kid in art school that I would see nothing in, in that time that I think are great now. I've never looked at a Rembrandt and just been like, oh, that's brown and shit. <laughs> there are certain Rembrandts that I like a lot more than others. His scenes do more for me than his portraits. Uh, although I haven't seen like a ton of portraits in a, in a room or something like that. But the, the few Rembrandts that I've seen, you know, his, his etchings in person and a couple of little paintings of like interior scene, like people in interiors that just blow me away and, the amount of light that seems to come from that. Uh, yeah, maybe somebody would look at that and be like, oh, well, it's just, you know, some saint or whatever. I don't care. <laughs> uh, whereas I think, man, that's some of the best painting ever done. The lesson that he's trying to say, it's like, yeah, I love that. Art is a static, non-changing thing that is never the same. Uh, yeah, you can take that as a lesson or you can just like kind of chewing up on it for a while. Or you can um, memorize that and quote it at a party and sound smart and shit. <laughs> uh, lesson 32. You're, you must prize vulnerability. What's that? It's following your work into its darkest corners and strangest manifestations, revealing things about yourself that you don't want to reveal until your work requires you to do this and never failing in only mediocre or generic ways. We all contradict ourselves. We contain multitudes. You must be willing to fail flamboyantly. Do things that seem silly and might get you judged as a bad person. Um, I think that goes back to like lesson one, I think. I don't know. One of the very um, first lessons I talked about on here where you have to uh, reveal yourself and speak honestly through your work. And that vulnerability is so hard to be for most people, especially myself, me being the shy person that I am. I hate being vulnerable um, for the most part, but uh, in a way, it becomes fun. <laughs> uh, the thrill of uh, being vulnerable and then being kind of uh, rewarded for it <laughs> in a way. Um, like, for example, like doing the Waiting to Dry podcast. 
it's a whole different medium speaking to a an audience even though it's recorded you can always go back and edit it it's pretty on the on the fly what we do on there and what i'm doing here is kind of on the fly even though you know i'm using the the article as a springboard to talk about things and gets me thinking i could have something to react to but at the same time i'm speaking pretty honestly about how i feel about things in the art world and so the vulnerability i think that he's more speaking about is the art that you create how much of yourself are you leaving on the canvas what part of you are you going to reveal on the canvas as well and the more that you can reveal and the more honest it is and without as much cloudiness around it whether it's through not being able to express yourself in in the way you want or feeling too afraid like you know you have more to say but you don't want to be judged for it the further you can get beyond that and prizing your vulnerability i guess is a is a one way to try and think of it the more your work will speak to people at least that's that's my opinion but also an opinion that i've gotten to through the amount of art that i've done at this point and so the last one lesson 33 <laughs> be delusional at 3 a.m demons speak to all of us i am old and they still speak to me every night and every day they tell you you're not good enough didn't go to the right school are stupid don't know how to draw don't have enough money aren't original that what you do doesn't matter and who cares and you don't even know art history and can't schmooze and you have a bad neck they tell you that you're faking it that others see through you that you're lazy that you don't know what you're doing that you're just doing this to get attention or money i have one solution to turn away those demons after beating yourself up for a half an hour or so stop and say it loud yeah but i'm a fucking genius <laughs> that's pretty funny uh you are now <laughs> art is for anyone but it just isn't for everyone these rules are your tools. Now use them to go change the world. Get to work. All right. Uh, let's go back to what he said there. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's those self-doubt things that you tell yourself all the time. Uh, you know, there's the ones that I'd say I deal with some of those sometimes. The, you're faking it. People see through you. You're lazy. You don't know what you're doing. You're doing it to get attention or money. Uh, there's part of you that that will always probably feel that way. It's kind of funny to just be like, yeah, but I'm a fucking genius. <laughs> I mean, you don't. It's one of those things. Those, I think it's what he's saying. The whole fake it till you make it thing. Everyone has their own way of dealing with it, but that's a pretty, I guess, basic and stark way of of saying that. Uh, just you know, putting all that aside and just going like, yeah, but fuck all that. <laughs> uh, my mom thinks I'm cool still, or whatever, you know. And so yeah. Uh, that is all 33 of Jerry Saltz's rules for how to be an artist. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good advice in there. I'd say <laughs> you don't have to take all of those. Like I'm, I definitely don't have to think all of those are, are true statements. I don't think that they're all applicable to everybody all the time, but there are definitely some gems in there and, uh, yeah, it's worth finding that article maybe saving it, bookmarking it, putting it somewhere that you can refer to later on. 
hope you guys found that interesting for me to kind of review that article. I thought it was a cool article. It was for me, I got something out of going through and, and just talking about it out loud as I read about it and thinking through it. If you guys have any more to say about what I've said on here, let me know. Everyone have a good Christmas and I will see you next month when I do another one of these. Thanks for hanging out and I'll talk to you next time.